0: Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and here today with
1: Will Sloan, and
0: you're listening to The Important Cinema Club, and today we're going to be talking about Ho Shao Shen. So as you mentioned last week, Will, this is a director that you had some familiarity with. In fact, you had a little bit of an angry relationship with him. Yes,
1: folks, let me take you back to the year 2006, when I was 17 years old. I mentioned this last week. The first time I saw a Ho Shan movie was when his movie three times opened theatrically in North America. And it was one of the very few Ho Xiaoshan movies to get any kind of theatrical release in North America. Like, for a long time, he had this reputation as like the great foreign filmmaker, the master who somehow could not get released in America because he was he was just too arty, too obscure. That was his reputation. His
0: cameras locked down, his movies are long. How are North American audiences supposed to
1: handle this? So yeah, I was 17, I saw three times, and I hated it. I felt it was an affront. It's like... This movie is so slow. I've never seen a movie this slow. This is, this is the emperor's new clothes right here. I'm smarter than this. I'm 17 years old. I'm I'm smarter. I could make this movie. Exactly. My kid could paint this, (laughs) but I don't know. I think clearly the movie stuck with me. Like I must've been like stimulated in some way by the challenge of it because after that, like I sought out other Hoshoshen movies. Like, I went and rented Millennium Mambo from Bay Street Video, and I had a similar, but not quite as violently negative reaction to it. And then Like over time, in the 15 years since seeing Three Times, I've seen most of his major movies. And I definitely, I definitely like him now. Well, I I think he's a great filmmaker now. And I've become like more and more fascinated by him over the years. Uh, Did you have any sort of relationship with him? Not
0: really, but I did know him as one of those like Pantheon slow art house directors, a lot of his films were about his own childhood, or documents of the Taiwanese experience between a certain number of years. So there is something very intimidating about that, of like, oh man, A City of Sadness. I'm sure it's good, but 159 minutes good? I'd rather watch 159 minute uh, Indian film. More fighting in that. Well,
1: yes, I remember seeing City of Sadness for the first time when they played at, a, I think, Cinematheque Ontario in like, 2009, maybe. I think I was 20 or 21 where I saw it. And I was totally lost watching that movie at that age because, I mean, come on, what did I know about Taiwanese history when I was 20? (laughs) I mean, not, not a whole lot.
0: I would say, though, that his films were a lot more welcoming than I thought they would watching so many for this episode because, like, a lot of filmmakers, like, especially when they're this seeped in historical matters that you're afraid that if you don't have kind of a deep familiarity with it, that you'll be completely lost. And something like A City of Sadness, while it doesn't hold your hand, you get a general idea that like Taiwan was occupied by the Japanese, and then the Chinese government came in. Yeah,
1: so a little bit of historical background to put Ho Xiaoshan in context. Taiwan had a very turbulent 20th century. It was under Japanese colonial rule from 1895 until the end of the Second World War, at which time it returned to mainland Chinese rule. Almost as soon as the Second World War ended, the Chinese Civil War began and the ruling Kuomintang Party was defeated by Mao's Communist Party, and by 1949, Taiwan was the only place where the Kuomintang still ruled. So many mainland refugees flooded into Taiwan. There was huge social unrest. The Taiwanese government eventually established martial law, which lasted from 1949 until 1987. And that's not even getting into just the very uncertain and shifting role that Taiwan has occupied on the world stage. Like when the United States normalized diplomatic relations with China in the 70s, it no longer recognized Taiwan as an independent nation. What's incredible is that Taiwan Amidst all this unrest, has always had a very dynamic film industry. And in particular, the 80s saw the rise of a movement of Taiwanese art cinema that was praised all over the world. And the big names are Ang Lee, Edward Yang, Simon Lang, and of course, Ho Shao Shen. And
0: Ho Shao Shan, what's really interesting about his career is that he didn't come out of the gate as like, all right, I'm announcing myself as an art house filmmaker. He's a guy that as a director, it took him a while to find his voice. Like if you look at his filmography, a lot of his earlier films are like, uh, you know, kind of frothy romantic romantic comedies starring the likes of Kenny B, a pop star that any Hong Kong cinema fan will recognize because he was part of The Winners, a very popular uh, musical
1: group. I know The Winners only because the Jackie Chan movie Armor of God features a parody band of them called The Losers.
0: And it wasn't until Ho Shao Shen kind of centered his movies upon his own history that he started to come into his own as a filmmaker. As a filmmaker with a very distinct voice, yeah,
1: Ho Shao Shen was born in 1947 in Kwangtung uh, or Guangdong, you know, formerly the Canton Province in southern China. The year after he was born, his family was one of many families that eventually migrated to Taiwan. I mean, there's there's a lot you can say about his films stylistically, thematically, but certainly that sense of displacement, that sense of confusion about Taiwan and confusion about its history and its relation to China would be very close to him and is reflected in some of his early films.
0: And a lot of his work, especially that kind of like trilogy that catalogs the specific Taiwanese history where he was growing up is very
1: anti-China. In the mid 80s, after that early run of kind of frothy, poppy movies. He came to prominence through that trilogy you alluded to of autobiographical films. There was Summer at Grandpa's, A Time to Live and A Time to Die, and Dust in the Wind. We both watched Summer at Grandpa's this week.
0: I very much enjoyed it. I was surprised that watching this film, that it has a lot of his hallmarks, but he's still kind of figuring himself out. And whoo boy, the drama content is very high. You know, when you explain someone how Ho Xiao Shen kind of like approached to storytelling that oftentimes is very opaque and that he will capture a community or a group of people over necessarily the individual, then you expect maybe it'll be very sparse. And like, A Summer of Grandpa's is not. (laughs) It's filled with incident, hair-raising incident, if you will. You know,
1: it's funny you should mention that because, again, I've seen most of his movies, but going into this week, I still had this mistaken perception of him as somehow a minimalist filmmaker. (laughs) He is not. No, because his films are very slow and they rein in a lot of the storytelling techniques that hollywood filmmakers use so he doesn't use a lot of close-ups there's very little editing he doesn't use music to specifically direct your emotions and he uses long unbroken shots i think his film flowers of shanghai which runs two hours long has only 40 shots in the whole movie
0: later on in his career he started with his cinematographer at the time to essentially play every scene in one shot was the camera kind of like roaming around. But in A Summer at Grandpa's, it is more conventional in a sense, in the kind of visual storytelling. But the actual structure of the film is very similar to his more famous films like A City of Sadness. Uh,
1: that's what I mean. His films are denser than I remembered. Certainly denser than Simon Lang's films are. Novelesque, if you will. Yeah, there's a lot going on in his long shots. There are many characters, many converging storylines. I do find him a challenging filmmaker, frankly. He makes stories that are very challenging to follow. They're challenging because they don't offer the same emotional payoffs that most movies do, which is not to say that they're lacking in emotion. Far from it. I think
0: that what you mean is there isn't the like catharsis that you expect from conventional stories.
1: Yeah, like let me tell you about a scene that has lingered with me from his film The Puppet Master. That's a film that's about a real-life Taiwanese puppeteer whose life is set against the backdrop of Taiwanese history, you know, and the actual guy narrates the film. So there's a scene in that movie where we see the puppet master's wife crying, and then it cuts to him in the yard, a long shot, he's kind of framed in the distance, and he's hammering away at something, and then in his narration, because he narrates the film, he very unsentimentally very briefly just says that this is when his son died so eventually we find out that the scene that we're watching like we're watching him build his son's coffin and then it just fades into the next scene now this is an enormously powerful scene But it's presented in such an unusual way. It's presented in this way of, like, you start with the crying, and you're not sure what the crying's about. Then you see this act of, like, stoic keep on keeping (laughs) oning. I don't know how else to describe it. You are just sort of laid out, like, just the facts, what happened. And there's something about the film's refusal to indulge in that kind of catharsis that makes it so powerful.
0: I think that A Summer at Grandpa's is a good, like, introductory film in his filmography, because you have all the elements that he would explore in deeper ways later on, but presented... I feel more in your face like this film you look at the poster there's like 30 characters on it and they all appear in the film but they all have their very distinct dramatical stories that they're going through whether it be uh, the grandfather having to deal with his son who got someone pregnant the kids that are the titular stars of the film that are visiting the countryside from the big city and are seeing all these events play out not quite understanding what's going on so it's mostly the viewer that is seeing through their prism as all of these very adult things are happening. Things that don't actually have any particular solution. Yeah,
1: and you see them the way that a kid would see them, just in fragments and not fully understanding what you're seeing. And again, no catharsis, no easy resolution to anything. And they're powerless.
0: Yeah, they don't really have any agency in what's going on. I would say that the agency that is presented is the youngest girl in the movie. She is shown near the end of the film to be very resolute resolute to stay by someone that got hurt helping her like that is one of the big all right i'm making a character decision i'm getting involved in what's going on even though it doesn't have any you know concrete differences and how things will roll out, but it is an emotional connection that the film is presenting.
1: I also like how unsentimental this movie is about childhood. Like, these kids are little shits, you know? Oh, yeah, they suck. I appreciate (laughs) that. And I like that the movie captures how frustrating it is to be both a kid and an adult. I noticed in your
0: review, you're like, what's better, being a kid or an adult? And, you know, both of them, they're terrible in different ways. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It should be noted that this film is based on the childhood of Chu Chen Wang, who would go to be Ho Shen's main collaborator when it comes to writing the screenplays. Like she was there on essentially all of his major projects.
1: So City of Sadness came out in 1989 and it was part of a trilogy of films that he made examining Taiwanese history. City of Sadness, The Puppet Master and Good Men, Good Women. And this movie was his biggest hit in Taiwan. It's considered one of his greatest movies. It's not hard to understand why it was so popular given that it came two years after the end of martial law so it was the first film to address a lot of governmental misbehavior that happens during martial law. Notably, the plot incorporates the February 28th incident, which happened in 1947. The Kuomintang government massacred thousands of protesters. This was a very traumatic event for Taiwan that for 40 years could not be acknowledged in art.
0: Here you have, again, like a summer at grandpa's, a sprawling portrait of essentially this time a family, a bunch of brothers and all the different paths they go through life, not with any kind of plot or any kind of goal, just a diary-esque, like flipping through photographs of all of their lives.
1: Yeah, it's three brothers, as well as another brother who disappeared in the war. And they are the micro against the macro of Taiwanese history. They intersect with it in various ways. Like a lot of Simon Lang's films, it does this rather perverse thing where major plot incidents are not depicted. They happen off camera, and you hear about them in the dialogue.
0: Like even the end of the movie, a lot of these films, it's
1: like, and then the person was captured. Not to skip over City of Sadness too abruptly, but Flowers of Shanghai is a masterclass in that. I mean, that's a movie where so much happens off screen. And in fact, the movie is so deliberately claustrophobic. It takes place almost entirely indoors to the point where, I mean, I think flowers of Shanghai is an extraordinary movie, but I felt like I was going insane watching it, you
0: know, a city of sadness. You know, it's like a bigger extension, a reflection of A Summer at Grandpa's that it essentially utilizes a very similar structure, but it stretches it out over a longer period of time and defines it within the history that was going on in Taiwan at the time. So, like, it's a great movie using a lot of the same techniques. There's even the same, I'm going to say, gag where you see somebody chase another person with a stick and then it cuts to like a big, almost like Jacques Tetis style wide scene as you see the person being chased.
1: Now I know that City of Sadness, I I mean I'm not an expert in this, but I understand that there was a bit of a shift in his style visually in some of the earlier movies including City of Sadness. He used a lot of wide shots and then Flowers of Shanghai is part of a new era of his career where he's doing a lot of claustrophobic shooting. You know, Millennium Mambo has a lot of that.
0: Yeah, shoot every scene in one take, the camera seems to almost be drifting through
1: the scenes as they play out. Start when you come into the scene, leave before the scene feels over. So this is based on a novel about the goings on in a Shanghai flower house during the late Qing dynasty. Actually, several flower houses, which I didn't initially realize as I was watching it. Me neither.
0: (laughs) Even though there's title cards, but I'm like, ah, these are just abstract
1: title cards, right? Now, a flower house, I learned this from the Tony Raines interview on the Blu-ray. A flower house isn't a brothel, exactly rather it's a place where men go to enact courtship so most of the attendees at a flower house were married but they were arranged marriages so the men never really had a chance to date they never really had a chance to go through those sorts of feelings so a lot of the relationships in the chinese flower houses were monogamous believe it or not like the men would buy a woman's time long term
0: knowing that going into the movie that's already a skeleton key that will unlock a lot of the stuff that's happening on screen because the film doesn't give you any hints that that's what's going on i also had to look up what a flower house was i'm like wait a minute okay what's going on here
1: it's set as i indicated in the late 19th century there were a couple of converging plots in this film the main one involves master wang Played by Tony Leung, who's been in a long term relationship with a flower girl named Crimson. Their relationship is on the rocks. He fears that she has been unfaithful to him, so he started seeing another flower girl from another flower house uh, named Jasmine. Now, in a typical Ho Shoshen fashion, there's a big confrontation between Jasmine and Crimson that takes place off camera. We only get some of the ripples of that we find out that this has brought, like, great shame, great gossip to Master Wang. So it's soured his relationship with Crimson.
0: Or there's a big emotional outburst in the film. And when it happens, we're not even quite sure why it's been triggered until later on when two characters are talking about it. And it's crazy that we've been talking about the director this long and have not mentioned how beautiful his films
1: are. Oh, my God. I mean, stunningly beautiful. Some of the most beautiful movies you'll ever see. In a
0: picturesque way, in a way that because it's not, you know, hitting the dramatic beats that you expect... You start to take in what's happening. You start to look for details, storytelling hints that can kind of, you know, point you in the right direction to let you know what's going on. And by doing that, you are also taking in more of the image as it's being presented.
1: You're appreciating it in a way that you don't usually do when you're attaching yourself to a plot. That's true. In Flowers of Shanghai, again, it takes place in about 40 shots.
0: Oh my God. And it's all indoors. Let me out!
1: Oh, wow. You definitely feel clocked by the end of this thing and it's mostly lit with oil lamps. Stunningly beautiful. And the camera is just drifting through these tableaus. The camera doesn't necessarily correspond directly with what's happening on screen, or rather, I should say that Ho doesn't direct your attention specifically to what's happening on screen. The
0: camera moves distractedly or even like sleepily, like, "Eh, I don't know, I'm gonna look over here now (laughs) without any like storytelling reason that the viewer could discern right from the get go.
1: Yeah, most of the characters in the movie are in some state of opium haze. And I
0: feel like the camera kind of indicates that, that dreamy kind of out of it feel And the fact that, like, you feel like you're missing something, that you're missing some details, it corresponds to someone being real
1: high. Also, in addition to how beautiful his films are, one should note the soundscapes. I understand that... Ho was the first Taiwanese filmmaker to use direct sync sound when making his films, and this is particularly meaningful in a Taiwanese context because he wanted to preserve certain accents and dialects. Previously, all films in Taiwan were just automatically dubbed into Mandarin, partly because it was more cost-efficient. Taiwanese accents in those films, I learned from Jonathan Rosenbaum, were mostly used comedically. In the 40s, the Kuomintang government outlawed Taiwanese dialects in schools and government functions and government institutions. So Ho was doing something very political with the sound of his films. I
0: mean, he said that, when he finished those films that were kind of covering a historical period in Taiwan, that he did what he wanted to do, that he was able to tell these stories and capture them on screen in ways that had never been done before and have never been done since because people don't talk about that. Maybe those people are dead. But he was there and he was able to put this realism, this history up on screen. And beyond just the beautiful images or the way he constructs his films, that's very important to him and to the viewer as well.
1: More Recently, Ho had a significant international art house hit in The Assassin, which he won the Best Director Prize at Cannes for, and this is... I guess seemingly, superficially, if you just look at the poster, one of his more commercial projects in that it is a wuxia film, a martial arts film. Back in the
0: days where we couldn't get enough of them.
1: It is no less a Ho Shen film than any other one, right down to its very complicated and somewhat opaque plotting. I read an interview with Ho in The Guardian where he said... Plot? I don't think that plot is the only way to appeal to an audience. The audience can catch the message of a film through landscape, character, details.
0: I remember reading that Ho said that he shot, like, essentially a very clear, straightforward movie, that all the beats were hit, and it's through editing that he cut it away, till only the emotions remained. You know, Woosha stories are very complicated. And so if you trim that away, you infer your own kind of emotional tableau over the images, the beautiful images that are playing out. And I think that The Assassin, it elevates itself beyond all the other wuxia films that came around this time, because it understands that it's letting the viewer just absorb the images while still delivering action scenes as
1: well. The action scenes are beautifully choreographed, but he also drains the action of its visceral excitement he has a
0: lot of jump cuts
1: reminding you that what you're watching is artificial in the way that it plays out so the titular assassin is played by shu ki and she was kidnapped at a young age by some master who trained her to become an assassin to kill corrupt government officials and she becomes very good at this job very lethal but then one day she decides not to kill one particular government official in front of his son. And this makes her master very upset. And so she's assigned to kill another government official. But this is a very difficult job because it is her her cousin, her estranged cousin from the family she was taken away from and her cousin who she was originally supposed to marry. And this marriage would have brought peace to two warring tribes or communities or clans or whatever. So
0: like all the previous films he made before, you have this portrait of like a dozen different people all doing different things. Shuki, as the titular assassin, is almost floating through most of the film like a ghost watching these events as they play out. And
1: again, most of the plot is revealed through long dialogue scenes. And it can be easy to miss certain plot points because the dialogue scenes are so beautiful. I think this is probably his most beautiful movie, which is saying something. There's... One scene where the cousin, the warlord or the leader, or I don't know what you would call him, but (laughs) the person she's supposed to assassinate, he explains his whole family history. He's framed in front of this this yellow fabric that's drifting in the wind, which gives this very strange texture on screen, like it's almost translucent. And as a viewer, you're so distracted by the sheer visual beauty of this fabric in, in front of the action that you're not really listening to what the guy is saying. So it's very easy to miss the plot. And you have to think that Aho is doing that deliberately.
0: Yeah, I don't think he really cares about the plot that much. Yeah, yeah. That, like, the images and the ways that they play out, the edits, all of it together, that's what he cares about. Not necessarily the ins and outs of, why is she murdering this person? Why is she going here? Like, you can infer that through the kind of like slow motion actions that you're seeing play out on screen. Did you know, and this has stuck in my mind since I read it, that he originally wanted to shoot the film on a wind-up 16 millimeter Bolex, which means that a shot could only last one minute.
1: That's interesting. I mean, that would seem to go against so much of his style in this and other films.
0: Looking at all the films that he's made essentially since Flowers of Shanghai, he seems a little bit kind of adrift of what movie or what direction that he should go because, like, he made Millennium Mambo, he made an Ozu film that uh, was commissioned with Cafe Lumiere, another commission, The Flight of the Red Balloon, and finally The Assassin, which was like
1: his genre film. Well, yeah, before that, he was making these trilogies. He went through these very clear periods, but everyone since Flowers from Shanghai, and he's made some very, very good movies since Flowers uh, of Shanghai, but everyone has seemed very different.
0: And I wonder if it's because the industry is not as welcoming to his work anymore. It especially when you consider that films like The Puppet Master and A City of Sadness are completely unavailable in any high-definition transfer. Hmm, I wonder why these films that are critical of the Chinese government (laughs) during the 50s and beyond are somehow not available
1: anymore. I also know that he wanted to make The Assassin, or at least a movie like it, for many years. In fact, Flowers of Shanghai originally started life as a wuxia film. He went to the mainland to research a wuxia film, but got sidetracked with this story of the flower houses. And I think principal photography of the assassin lasted something. It had a Wong Kar Wai-like shooting schedule.
0: I mean, he said he shot and shot and shot and shot until he got what he needed. And he finally was able to edit it down to 105 minutes.
1: He hasn't made anything since the assassin. Who knows what direction he will go in? Who knows what direction he can go in? Yeah,
0: I was about to say, what is allowed uh, for him to do at this point <laughs> when his stories are so, you know, specifically attached to, two Taiwanese people and their history. I
1: don't know. If The Assassin turns out to be his last movie, it's a good swan song. Great
0: movie to go out on, but I hope it's not. I feel like every time we tackle one of those slow directors, the conclusion that we come to at the end is like, they're not that slow. They're more approachable than you
1: think. <laughs> well, you know, that's what we're here for. We're we're just two dum-dums. <laughs> we're two rubes. Yabba-dabba-doo! <laughs> we're here to tell the rubes out there in the audience that folks, if we can enjoy it, so can yeah, you. Yeah,
0: so definitely check out some of his films because it's definitely worth it. So as per usual, you can send us letters at podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Alex Lacastro and he goes Dear Justin and Will I've been working my way through some of my Gold Ninja video purchases on my off days and listening to the podcast as usual and a certain blind swordsman keeps wiggling his way into your discussions from the commentaries for The Dragon Lives Again and God Set to Cain and Blood of the Dragons to the recent Spaghetti Western episode and the What We're Watching Patreon episode Zaduichi keeps popping up of course I would never expect you guys to watch the entirety of Zaduichi's original 25 film run but as someone who did accomplish that very feat over the course of the last year's quarantine I do think that the series is ripe for discussion. Like any series as long as this one, the quality of entries can definitely vary, though I would say they're all at least pretty good. I think many people get bogged down trying to watch every single film in order when you could just hop around to some fan favorites or otherwise notable entries to get the gist. I guess my question would be, how much Zatoichi, Shintaro Katsu content have you guys consumed? Are there any non-Kurosawa Chambara or series that you're particularly fan of? I'd love to hear your thoughts.
1: Sincerely, Ali. Well, I've got that Criterion box box set staring at me on my shelf collecting dust waiting for a time for me to really delve into it but yeah i've probably seen like five zatoichi movies over the years i think i've seen maybe one zatoichi movie <laughs> i'm surprised you've only seen one that would seem up your alley I don't know. Yeah,
0: it is up my alley. I, I I can't really explain it. Why it's not something that I can get into that much? Maybe because I look around, I'm like, well, everybody's already into it. I don't need to watch those movies.
1: <laughs> well, they are good from what I've seen. And I would love to do uh, more of a deep dive. I mean, we can certainly at any time do a Zatoichi episode. I'd be down for it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I never even picked up the uh, Criterion box set because I was poor at the time that it came out. <laughs> and I, actually, now I couldn't buy it either. <laughs> so our next letter is titled Rodney Dangerfield feedback. (laughs) Guys, I'm a new convert to the show and I'm loving what I hear so far as I marathon old episodes and listen to new ones. Oh, thank you. But... How could you guys do a deep dive into the Rodney Dangerfield filmography without a single mention of his masterpiece, Easy Money, from 1983? Of all his films, it's the one that comes the closest to capturing the bloodshot, downtrodden stand-up persona. Only this time was Jennifer Jason Leigh and a raging bull-caliber Joe Pesci at his side. The poster screamed, No cheating, no gambling, no booze, no smoking, no pizza, no nothing, which just may be the ultimate premise for a film. Guys, no respect until you review Easy Money. See you at the racetrack from Patrick Macias. And I should point out, I believe this is the author of Tokyo Scope. You remember that book? Oh, of course I do. Wow. I just want to say, if it is, man, that was a big book when I was coming up as a cinephile. So thank you for writing
1: it. And if it isn't, that's okay too.
0: I mean, people should check out Tokyo Scope, the Japanese cult film companion. Now, when it comes to easy money, I think we've said this before, like... We try to watch as many movies as we can. I
1: would say that after three Rodney Dangerfield movies, I was just about done with them.
0: And I like to kind of like look into the, you know, universal opinion on places like Letterboxd. And Easy Money uh, was not very well liked.
1: I believe you. I believe it's better than some of the ones we talked about. I believe it's better than Ladybugs.
0: I would love to, just as a joke, have like a Rodney Dangerfield revisited episode somewhere down the line. All right, let's do it. <laughs> That'd be so funny. So, Patrick we will do it down the line we'll do easy money and finally get to my five wives yes (laughs) so our last letter is from Sean Curran and it goes hello boys this past week and a bit I've been going through the filmography of Ho Shao Shen and it has inspired some unique feelings in me I'm wondering if you're familiar with I saw The Assassin during its theatrical run in 2015 my first Ho and I was struck by its obvious features its beauty obtuse storytelling and deliberately slow paced I didn't delve further into any of his films until this past week and now my view of The Assassin has changed drastically with the added context of his other features I see a great deal more tragedy isolation and irony feelings and ideas that were entirely invisible to me back in 2015 I won't waste your time elaborating on my amateurish read of the film but I do have one question have either of you had an experience like this where understanding the context and history of a filmmaker has revealed a new layer to a film you are already familiar with peace and love Sean All the time.
1: Oh, of course. Yes, every week on the Important Cinema Club podcast. I
0: think the one delight I have with doing this podcast, being able to talk about these movies, is going back to stuff that's like really canonical and having a little bit more context about it and rewatching it and going, oh, okay, this makes more sense. This is resonating with me in a way that maybe it didn't when I saw it for the first time. And I feel like everyone listening to this, anyone that watches movies, everybody on planet Earth, that is the only way that you can... Go to any kind of art is being open that you know your next experience with it will probably be dramatically
1: different. Yeah, I could never understand that Pauline Kale thing of only watching a movie once. I mean, I on. mean,
0: Pauline Kale saying that is her saying, I am smart, I will get it right from the get go, <laughs> and that's it, I don't need to see it again. It always rubbed me the wrong way when I read that. And she was very proud of that just watching a movie once thing.
1: Well, she's overrated.
0: I agree. So thanks very much for all your letters. And as per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. So, Will, what are we doing on our Patreon this week?
1: Well, you said yabba-dabba-doo earlier. <laughs> and surely you were inspired by the protagonist of our Patreon subject this week, Mr. Fred Flintstone. We talked about 1994's The Flintstones, starring John Goodman and Rick Moranis. The
0: Bryant-Levant-Cloud. Classic! The film that, oh, we didn't even mention this on this episode, was a massive hit making $345 million. I believe it was fourth or fifth at the box office that year. It made a real rock pile. if you want more rock puns like that, make sure to check out the Patreon episode, which was picked by our $10 patrons from the Patreon. And you can do that by going to patreon.com slash theimportantcinemaclub. Check it out. Check out our whole back catalog for just $5 a month. What are we doing
1: next week, Will? Next week, we're talking about a filmmaker who passed away not long ago. He is much loved by those who know about him, but not known about by all that many. He is Monty Hellman, the forgotten genius of the 70s new Hollywood.
0: Are we going to check out, you know, the obvious ones like Tulane Blacktop, maybe even go into something like Iguana? But do you dare, Will, to check out a film like Silent Night, Deadly Night 3?
1: (laughs) I am a little curious about that one, but anyone who I've talked to who has seen it has said that it does not have a lot of Hellman touches in it.
0: Every time he was interviewed, though, he was so proud
1: of that film. I would love to watch all the Monty Hellman movies for this. I would love to revisit Road to Nowhere.
0: Or the film that he was fired from, Shatter.
1: So yeah, I'm very excited to delve in. The biggest regret of my life is that I didn't go to Monty Hellman's Airbnb that he ran in Hollywood in the decade before his death. Ah, so sad.
0: Oh, well, well, I'm very excited to go back through his filmography. It's a great one. I mean, this is a guy whose first feature film was a Roger Corman production, Beast from Haunted
1: Cave. Oh, man. Yeah, it's a great career. Not long enough, but everyone a banger. So
0: until then, my name is Justin the Clue. I'm Will Slime. Thanks for listening. (laughs) interrupt your regular scheduled programming to thank some of our new patrons who include Just Stiles, Raphael Ambrosius, Costo, and Jeremy Hawkins. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not do it without you. And this is the final reminder. If you are listening to this on the day of this podcast release, there is going to be a 24-hour movie marathon hosted by me happening tomorrow, June 5th. It's the summer movie Mind Melter. I think this is the best lineup of films I have Ever programmed. They're all bangers, not a miss, and I hope you can join me. 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's going to be happening at Twitch TV slash Important Cinema Club. If you like more information or updates or even hints of the movie that we'll be playing, check out my Twitter at DeclouxJ. J. That is D E C L O U X and the letter J. Also, if you can't make the marathon, but you still want to help, we'd really appreciate it if you wrote us a review on Apple Podcasts. Every new review helps us find a bigger audience and just puts a smile on me and Will's face. So with that, we now return you to your regular scheduled programming.
1: I was listening to Quentin Tarantino on the Pure Cinema podcast this week. He goes on that podcast quite a bit, and uh, first of all, if... Anybody listening to this podcast knows Quentin Tarantino. I'm sure we must have at least one listener who knows him. I would very happily be friends with Quentin Tarantino. (laughs) I would accept that.
0: So you'd be like, yeah, whatever you say, Mr. Tarantino.
1: (laughs) No, no, here's the thing. I I deserve to be a friend of Tarantino's because I would push back. I
0: don't believe that for a second. Well,
1: you know what? Quentin, I'm on a first name basis with him now, can come on our podcast and we can test that out. You
0: had a point that you wanted to bring up with something that Quentin Tarantino talks about
1: a lot. Oh, yeah. Well, I was going to say like how full of shit he is with this whole obsession that he has with like director's last movies. So... On this podcast, they were talking about what are the great last films? Because Tarantino, for as long as he's been a public figure, has been going on about how most directors get really bad as they get old, and most directors' last movies are terrible. And and that's not going to happen to me. Every one of my movies is going to be great. I'm only going to make ten movies, and they're all going to be winners.
0: I'm looking back at his filmography. I'm like, too late, Quentin. <laughs>
1: (laughs) Again, Quentin, if you're listening, and I know you are, we would both love to be friends with you. I just didn't think The Hateful Eight was all that good. (laughs) I'm not even thinking of that one. (laughs) (laughs) Or Death Proof. Is that the one you're thinking of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm more of an anti-Death Proof kind of guy. But but hey, Quentin, I thought Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was really good, you know? And what have I done?
0: Delightful. I just watched it again with Emily a couple days ago. Ah,
1: what a blast. First of all, I think Tarantino has to stop thinking that way about himself, because you as a filmmaker don't get to decide what your good ones and your bad ones are, and you don't to decide when you stopped being good as
0: a filmmaker why doesn't he want to just make as many movies as he can there's no director out there that has a perfect filmography it does not exist that's like saying i go to into work every day and i do the best job that i can
1: and also like think of the directors you like aren't you kind of like interested in their bad movies sort of
0: of course I am. don't they
1: add color to it if you're really interested in a director the bad ones illuminate the good ones in some way and look just because charlie chaplin ended things with accountants from hong kong hasn't hurt his reputation right like it it doesn't take anything away from city lights
0: no nobody goes like oh yeah howard hawks's last few films are shit That means he must continually be shit, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that doesn't happen. And also, you know, Tarantino seems so convinced that everyone's last movie is like, all these directors just pass their sell-by date at a certain time. And I don't think he really thinks about why that might be. Certain filmmakers do pass their sell-by date because they get complacent. They get very insulated. They stop engaging with the outside world. You know, classic Woody Allen syndrome. But that doesn't happen to everyone. I mean, many filmmakers remain engaged. I mean, this is just cherry-picking examples, but Orson Welles had a very productive late period. F for Fake is a great last movie. I mean, he went out on Transformers
0: the movie as an actor.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you see, he, he went out with his best film, Transformers the movie as long as you're still engaged I think Clint Eastwood has made some good movies recently because he's clearly still engaged he's clearly still trying stuff
0: and the thing is that like a lot of the directors that Tarantino brings up as like you know expiring while they're still making movies is the fact that they were working in a studio system and so they were given projects that they were forced to do so no wonder they became disengaged because they didn't think anybody cared
1: oh yeah I mean of course Michael Curtiz lost his mojo because when you direct casablanca and then after a while you're being given elvis presley movies Yeah, of course, you're going to get a little discouraged.
0: While Quentin Tarantino, as a director, he has never had to bow down to anyone. He has always gone his own path. So he could technically keep making movies until the cows came home, and he would probably still be given budgets to do so. Anyway,
1: so many good directors working today are over 70 years old. You know, Scorsese is still knocking out good ones. And I also feel that when Tarantino says that, that like, I just want to make good ones,
0: that also, you know makes young filmmakers go, oh, yeah, I need to be very specific about the movies that I make. And it's like, no, just make as many movies as you can, dude. Just get out there and make movies. Well, yeah,
1: I mean, you're right that he's been able to forge his own path. And that's, that's great for him. He certainly created a very distinctive and successful body of work with a almost Kubrickian lack of compromise from beginning to end. But, you know, there are a lot of filmmakers. I mean, Orson Welles didn't even particularly want to make Touch of Evil, and it became one of his best movies. I mean, there are lots of ways that directors accumulate a great body of work. Okay, actually, this gets to another beef I have with Tarantino. It's it's like, he loves genre movies so much, loves them so much, and yet he can't just make a genre movie. He,
0: I know! That's crazy! This is the thing that drives me nuts! I feel like we talked about it when we talked about Kill Bill on a Patreon episode. Yeah,
1: and look, I love Kill Bill, but what if he made a movie for 10 million dollars five million dollars and it didn't have what if he made death proof but without all those long talky tarantino scenes where they're talking about vanishing point but can he that's the question right i I don't think he can whatever works for him i guess who am i to say quentin you're listening as i say this is friendly criticism i would love to be your friend (laughs) (laughs)
0: I mean, if he ain't going to do it with Death Proof, I don't think it's ever going to happen. He's talked about it like shooting a martial arts film in Mandarin or something like that. Now that
1: I know Tarantino is out there on the internet, like reading stuff on the internet, listening to podcasts. Now I'm negging him. I think he might stumble on this podcast. So I'm negging him. I don't think so. <laughs>
0: I don't think so at all. I mean, that Pure Cinema podcast, I love when he's on because he talks about movies very passionately. I do not agree with him all the time. But there's always like a weird alleyway that he can go down. And those are my favorite
1: kind of podcasts. I loved on the Pure Cinema podcast, listening to him talk about J. Lee Thompson. He got me kind of excited about J. Lee Thompson because he was talking about Kinjite Forbidden Subjects, which is such an evil film, just a heinous film. And I always kind of thought that movie was probably just, you know one last cash in before he kicked the bucket. But Tarantino made this interesting case for J. Lee Thompson as having been this really pervy guy from the start, and it was all building up towards that movie. I
0: mean, Tarantino is the one that introduced me to the wild world of uh, one of the great action directors, William Whitney, so he's always done that as well.
1: <laughs> I mean, I do think Tarantino's influence on film culture has definitely been a net positive. Mm-hmm. He's had like a massive influence on film culture, just like, I can't think of anybody, just one figure who's done more to kind of dissolve the barrier between high and low as he's done. I think in the West, at least, I mean, maybe I'm giving him too much credit, but I don't think so. I think he's had a lot to do with the fact that spaghetti Westerns and Shaw Brothers martial arts films and Italian horror movies are taken seriously.
0: I mean, would I have seen Iron Monkey if Miramax uh, wasn't releasing it with Quentin Tarantino Presents? Uh, at the time, which launched me into my love of Hong Kong cinema? Maybe not. But Will, you're also forgetting a name who did as much as Quentin Tarantino when it comes to that kind of film culture stuff, Kevin Smith. Uh, What what did he do? What did he ever (laughs) do?